It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, part two of our conversation with poet David West. What What is poetry for? And to me, it, it just keeps coming down to asking harder questions about what is it that makes us not respond to shit? Yeah. What is it that makes us tolerate these things? If you could do that in a poem, I would rather do that than make people laugh. Or, you know, I, it's hard. I don't know how to do that. I'm still thinking about it. I would like to do that. If I died and walked through like three poems were decently going into just the extent to which Americans can accommodate this much evil in the world that they are paying for. I would die okay. (laughs) Even if nobody ever read it, probably nobody ever would, but um, that that interests me. That really interests me. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us through Facebook and Twitter. Leave comments for us there or email us at Podcast, always with a numeral 2, at gmail.com. And beat the crowd. Leave us a review at iTunes. On today's show, part two of our conversation with San Francisco poet David West. David's books are findable online. Look for Evil Spirits and Their Secretaries through Zeitgeist Press and Elegy for the Old Stud through Manic D Press. In part one of our conversation, David traced his steps from Ohio to Harvard to the San Francisco gay scene of the mid-70s to his membership in the Communist Party and finally finding himself as a writer in the city's rich spoken word scene in the 1980s and 90s. In the second part, our conversation travels beyond history and biography and into the realm of pure conversation that gives us a look at how David uses his knowledge and wisdom to navigate the world. The conversation swings through everything from Thelonious Monk, W.B. Alden, Shakespeare, Dante, Mark Twain, the Pussycat Dolls, hip-hop, the politics of protest, Obama, cultural inertia, and television. But as rambling as things get, David always brings it back to poetry, letting us see the world through a poet's eyes. We also have four more rare recordings of David's work, all recorded in the 1990s, often with David's brother Tom playing some quite nice piano. I lived in this city in the air, too, and it's easy to let it slip your mind how the ravages of the AIDS epidemic touched every resident of the city daily. Sometimes I ponder all the creative work that was never produced, lost before it was made in the deep swath of artists claimed by the disease, and David discusses the event in even more intimate terms. It's a topic of a couple pieces we'll hear throughout the show, including a poem for Doris Fish, an activist and drag star from Australia who took the city of San Francisco by storm in the 70s and 80s, and who died of AIDS in 1991. Doris Fish can still be seen starring in the gender-bending sci-fi comedy feature Vegas in Space. So let's head into the conversation, which evokes a little field recording fidelity at times. Part one took place as the sun was going down. By part two, David's kitchen was dark, but he lit candles rather than turn on the lights. We'll have one of David's poems lead us in. Where men stare at breasts that dance in the bra of a beat and feel cheated, I am there. Where men with fine minds and aging bodies kneel in johns and suck off disdain, I am there. Where men beat their fears into shields and strut like kids playing soldiers, I am there. 
Where men in the mirror see women with a beard and wear defiance like a dress, I am there. Where men with glazed eyes stare at strippers on stage with high voltage hunger, I am there. Where men lie for sex and later on the street someone greets them with hatred, I am there. Where men see a body they want too much to touch as the virus breeds in their blood, I am there. Where men fondle photos and a genie appears who can't grant one wish, I am there. Where men marry women, hunt men at night and carve notches in their pricks, I am there. Where men risk disease for one night of release and grieve their survival, I am there. Where men go blind looking at love like the sun and no one could touch them, I am there. Where men abandon all sexual hope and smile their denial like monks, I am there. Where love leads a man out of hell by the hand and it's hard to hold on, I am there. There's a guy I saw in Philly for years, and I always thought, man, that guy looks just like the guy who used to be one of the bartenders at, uh, at the Chameleon. Uh -huh. And I finally said something like, you didn't live in San Francisco, did you? And it was the Chameleon. It <laughs> the was, bartender yeah. was there, yeah. <laughs> I liked the Chameleon. I had to learn rock and roll with the Chameleon. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know rock and roll. I just had nothing to do with it when I was a kid. I was in the jazz and Bach. That's all my thing. I just didn't. I mean, it, 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 it was, I lived, I was a kid during the 60s and 70s, but somehow rock and roll just went right by me. Really? Right by me. I'm still, every once in a while, I'll hear these like top 40 stations playing these old rock songs, and I'll think, you know, that's not a bad song. <laughs> or I'll think, that's a terrible song. <laughs> the other night I was listening to Pink Floyd playing Brick in the Wall, yeah. thinking, what the fuck do you have against school teachers? What is your problem? <laughs> Assholes. I remember my eighth grade teacher just fuming about that song. Uh, he's I like, just, you see those guys in the back of the room? You think they need to hear we don't need no education? <laughs> I mean, really? I can think of a lot of people back in that day and age who would have gone after who were bombing Vietnam and all sorts of stuff. But teachers? Really? <laughs> of course, I was like the rock music nerd already at that point. And I was like, well, actually, I think it's a critique against the British school system, which is... <laughs> Really about conformity in British society, I think, sir. Oh. <laughs> there must be something. I've never been to Britain. I've never ever been to Britain. But they, there must, they must do something with their bureaucracies that's like a step up above what we do with our bureaucracies. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you ever, one of the most wonderful parts of Harry Potter is just when she goes off about British bureaucracies. It doesn't matter what the ministries, the schools, the headmasters, all that shit. There, it just is panoply of bullshit. Um, you read the Harry Potter books? Oh, I love Harry Potter. They were great. They were really fun. I mean, how can you not love a book that makes kids stand out in front of the bookstore? You know, for hours, dressed up like a wizard because they want to buy this eight hundred page book and they're going to read it cover to cover. <laughs> Yeah. I just saw that film Boyhood recently. Uh, have you heard about Richard Linklater's film in over 12 yes, years? Yes, I want to see that. 
and that has uh, the boy growing up in there has a waiting in line for Harry Potter moment in it. Ah. And I thought it was nice the way this is sort of a picture of uh, an era as well. As I heard the, that was uh, really good. Did you like it? It's something pretty moving about about really seeing a, a boy grow up yeah. over twelve years. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to resist that that hook. I think he's kind of a smart guy, Linklater. I mean, I don't always like everything he does, but he's. It's not stupid. Uh, I, we and him dated uh, the same woman <laughs> a couple of years apart. Wow. But, uh, but uh, she would sometimes say, sometimes you remind me so much of Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of like a millionaire film director in a yeah, lot of really. ways. But, uh, yeah, we have our moments. But. <laughs> but he's somebody really dedicated to language. I mean, he really makes films about people talking and conversation yes. as well. Yeah, yeah I, 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 it was a completely bizarre movie but Scanner Darkly I thought was a really smart weird little movie yeah I really enjoyed that as well I thought it really used that animation process yeah and he just there was something about that just utter paranoia that Dick did so well he got that he he got that pretty well in that movie you know did you see Waking Life yeah yeah Yeah, which I liked I mean it was a little more yeah, you know, French grad student talking philosophy shit after a while, but you know, I mean, yeah, it was pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> I told some young person I liked that at the time, and she was, and she rolled her eyes, and she's like, you know, kids at our dorm constantly watch that and smoke pot. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's some strange relationship between class and abstraction, and someday I will be able to figure out how to write intelligently about that relationship. What, what do you mean, class and abstraction? This, you know, I mean, Waking Life is a good example. The amount of philosophizing and abstract dis- discussions about abstract concepts that happens there only works with a certain class, with middle class kids on some level. It's not going to, that's just not going to be a big hit down in the hood. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's a poetry thing, too. I mean, poetry got very abstract in certain schools. You know, you look at what happened with language poetry, for example, and yeah. I cannot help but see a class component to the capacity to get that far up your ass, you know? <laughs> um, and it's ironic because they, they're, the, a lot of the genesis of that stuff was, was Marxist. They thought they were going to save language from capitalism and shit. I, yeah. I just baffles me how that was supposed to work, <laughs> but that's what they were saying, you know? And, jeez, how... Well, what's the guy, one of the, just the patron saints of that, that movement, Charles Bernstein, who teaches at, at Columbia, I think, yeah. goes on about how, you know, it's a capitalist plot, essentially, you know, that we don't get our share of the market. Yeah. It's not that we're boring or anything like that. That's not the problem. It's that, you know, capitalism doesn't like us. It's <laughs> liberate. It's conspiratorial, you know. And I'm looking at this like, yeah, no, I don't think so. I really don't. <laughs> It's like I would like to have you let you have a turtle race between you and whatever the latest blockbuster movie is and see who won because you're going to get cream, dude. Really not going to make it. Something happens to a culture when it gets to that point where it can get that far into abstraction. Argentine poetry, for example, has just finally got to the language poetry uh-huh. realm. South American poetry is discovering language poetry. Wow. It has a strange effect of being able to colonize vast areas of academia in ways that I don't understand because I don't get why it's fun. I mean, it's it's. I don't. I'm not. I mean, I know I'm being a little sectarian here, but 
<laughs> I would like to understand what's the appeal. I don't get it. I have been, I've read with language poets any number of times. Do you, do, do you have any stock imitation of a, of a language poet? I have, I'd have to get stoned. I don't have any pot. You, know? you just have to learn how to just stop, give up on syntax is not one in the gun and there's a glass and when... Um, um, uh, I, I don't know, I can't even do it because you, I, you have to stutter or something, but <laughs> I, I don't get it. I just, it's something I really honestly don't understand. I mean, you want to hear, you don't mean you're going to get tacky. This is funny. But um, when I was a communist, we had, a, we had businesses that were, that made money for the party. And I was in disgrace for some reason or another. I had been exiled to the print shop that we ran. And we had militants manning the presses who worked for nothing so we could outbid any print shop in town and we had a union buck so we were irresistible to certain people and the, there was a magazine called Socialist Review back then kind of political theory and the editor was a prominent liter language poet named Ron Silliman perfectly nice guy actually a very sweet guy but you know, a language poet he had no idea that he was getting his Socialist Review printed by a Socialist Party who thought his head was so far up his ass it was coming out his mouth. <laughs> Every time we looked at this magazine, we were like, holy shit, they honestly think anybody could organize around this. My God. And we were just like, in, once he left, we would close the door and be like, holy shit, look at this bullshit. You know, it was, <laughs> to us, it was, it's, it's, it's the same thing that, you know, me and Lerner and Eli would be like looking at some language poetry that came in and left one of his books and be like, what is going? Why is this the point? I don't get it. I'm, I guess I'm just stupid. And I still feel like I may deride it, but it's not coming from a point, place of understanding. I don't get it. I yeah. really don't understand what's the point. It must be know? a hard job to be the proofreader of the language poem. I don't know. I mean, there was. Did no... you really want three ums there? It seems like this might be more of a two um. I don't know. You know, I mean, there was still there. Every once in a while, there would be a line of who could make me laugh. Leslie Scalabino had a sense of humor. She was a funny lady, but most of the time, I really. I don't. It's not something I understand yet. The power it has had to colonize academic. MFA program after F MFA program. In San Francisco, uh, oh, City College. Isn't City College uh, known San for language poet, San Francisco State? Yes, the poetry center there is run by a language poet guy. It was just, it was really, that's kind of their thing, language yeah. poetry, you know? I mean, I'm a big fan of sort of free jazz music as well. And I, I know there's a lot of people that really, you know, uh, you make a stand. Ornette and Cecil Taylor. Ornette and Cecil, and yeah, people that, that play beyond chord changes sure. and that thing. And there's a lot of people that you know are still refusing to believe that anything is happening there. You know, besides. I think something's happening. I just I get impatient. I can only do like five minutes of it, and then I have to go beat my head against the wall, and I can come back in and try again. But I mean, it just it makes me. It's a little bit like 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 language poetry. It makes me feel like really, I'm a little stupid. <laughs> I'm just not getting it. I don't know what's going on. And Cecil Taylor, I think he just was such a character. I mean, he would be do playing and doing that singing stuff, and he was for a while. This is the doing poetry as well. Spec yeah, the spectacle of what he was doing. It may not have made sense to me, but it was so crazy. It was almost just like worth watching for the show of the whole thing. You know? Yeah. Well, I didn't know. I did not always know what Cecil Taylor was up to. You know, or that I kind of actually could hear. 
yeah. where it was going because I it was like Coltrane plus late Coltrane plus yeah, yeah. Got that. I kind of feel like when when Free Jazz first came on the scene it was tied in a lot with the sort of anger and the civil rights movement and stuff mm-hmm. and a lot of those pieces are really angry and it's really just a you know this blasting of anger and everything but as as that era sort of receded and free jazz music sort of went on or you know freer concepts that it became much more sort of textural and quiet and uh you know there could be some very beautiful free things that didn't uh, deal with uh with dissonance and that kind of thing and, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of players that, that played along that style that i found myself attracted to and <laughs> and now a lot of people have really coached into uh, their own their own composing where you know there's a you know a structured part that will will go into something that's free flowing and then come back to structure and and uh, there's a lot of exciting ideas uh, for for me around that around hmm. those sounds and those ideas. Dissonance is interesting to me. I'm interested in they can go there. It's just if you bust out of it all at the same place, where you bust out of your time signatures and you bust out of your key and you bust out of any melodic. St- I mean, I, it gets alien to me and I don't know where I am and I can't yeah. I can't follow it. You know, but you know, it's to some extent it's what you like. You know, I mean, there is no. I, I get so pissed off at these literary critics who feel like there's some free floating way of judging culture out there. You know, there's a universal code for what's good and what's yeah, bad. Yeah, there's you know? a truth out there. Yeah, yeah. bullshit. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of thing the Harold Bloom would be like. You know, you just feel like this is good playing. This is I'm playing and Shakespeare is great and this other shit's bad and you know who the fuck are you Carol Bloom you know who elected you so you know I, I that's kind of what I tell myself when I get that get my grump on it's like yeah Mr. West who elected you too dude you know some people like that shit I took a tour of the old stud last night it's a straight bar now in what used to be a dingy part of town, but it's hip these days. Over the heads of couples doing the ancient boy meets girl dance. Coco that goes to the old stud swirl by, snapping his just gypsy castanets. I saw Bobby in his nylons and rhinestone vest, reciting his elegant, tacky regrets. I saw Ascension in his habit, Absolving us all as we whispered the story of his eight years hard time in a Mississippi pen for one blowjob. I saw Wanda who always won the cleavage contest with his beard and his chest like a gorilla. I saw Freddie doing his fabulous Lauren Bacall, popping reds, saying pucker up and blow. Gabe was there, bored. There was no one to shock. Gabe, who once sprayed patchouli on his beard, draped a purple dress on his pot belly, threw a lace shawl over his enormous shoulders, and nervous as a rabbit in high heels, said, I'm going to play tourist in a straight Latino club. Want to come? I wore a suit and a hat and a butch attitude. We sailed by the unsuspecting doorman. Then the bouncer began to snarl. Heads began to turn. The rumor of the Gabachito Maricon floated through the crowd. The music stopped. People stared. Some clenched their fists. And Gabe was as happy as I'd ever seen him. Then the salsa struck up and the dancers danced on. It was as though neither of us were there. 
Last night, Gabe got bored. The horror got to him. His ghost leapt on a chair and screamed, What are you doing in our bar? As the kids below followed such formal routines, the women waiting for the men to make a move, the men waiting for the courage to do it. In the old stud, lust was such a casual thing. We took turns in the alley, giving each other head and lethal diseases. They'd bid me goodnight and go off to the baths, still dishing the evening, then they'd sigh the next morning about the tricks who got away. One time, Bobby even got on his knees to pray for his sugar daddy. Eight years later, the virus hit right after he found one. And Coco OD'd on bad Mexican junk, and the others are mostly dead. Ascension's still presiding over a farm up north with his habit and his lover and a shotgun by the door. Gabe, God knows where Gabe is now. Maybe doing Liberace's makeup in heaven. Bobby's on a respirator. It won't be long. I saw their ghosts in the old stud last night as the straight kids kept pouring in the door. What are you reading these days? I go all over the map. I read, I, I read a lot of Dante and Shakespeare and criticism and stuff, you know. Some of it's just because it, I, I don't want to say things other people have already said about some of the people I'm writing about. So when I dig into a project, I have to, it's embarrassing, but I have to find out what other people have written about the poets sure, I'm writing sure. about so I don't, you know, waste everybody's time by saying something somebody else has done a way better job than me writing about, you know. Um, so there's a certain amount of that stuff, and, and, and I'm interested in Elizabethan theater, so I read other playwrights from the same time as Shakespeare, and I just go back and read Shakespeare a lot. I really like Shakespeare. but And then I read genre. You know, science fiction and fantasy and there's kind of, they're bus books. I have to ride the bus a lot, going yeah. back and forth to work. And I want something with a story. I don't really care, a mystery, a science fiction book, whatever, but it's got to have a good fucking story. So I'm picky about which genre books I read, but I'll read that, you know, I'll read some literary fiction. Sometimes I get really impatient with it, but, you know, yeah. it's just kind of all, all depends. I have a, my best friend is a really good reader. And she's constantly feeding me this stream of books. So I'll read whatever she tells me to read. Um, I'll go out and shell tea sometimes, and she'll just say, okay, you have to read this guy, you have to read that girl, you read this, you have to read that. Oh, I like it all, but, you know, it's different. It's a different headset, you know. Yeah, yeah. How about you? What are you who are you reading? Who am I reading? Gosh darn it. Oh, I know the last thing I read. <laughs> it was... Trick Baby by Iceberg Slim. Why do I know that name? Iceberg Slim was the pimp turned uh, author. In the sixties and early seventies. The sixties and early seventies. Yeah, okay, and I was just I was just uh, doing an interview with the person who wrote the or or, or uh, directed the film of Trick Baby. And that's the last thing I really the last fiction I really read. Um, I read voraciously online newspapers, and I'm a I'm a big political follower and. Uh, what sites? What sites? You're talking uh, Counterpunch and CommonDreams.org and that kind of thing? Or? A lot of that kind of thing. I mean, also, uh, you know, the New York Times, the Guardian, okay. the Independent, um, uh, the Autonet, uh, a lot of those lefty things. I listen to a lot of Pacifica, which is unheard of back in Philadelphia, but, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of uh, KPFA. Democracy and, uh, Now. Democracy Now every morning. 
for it's years. My Bible, man. <laughs> Thank God for Amy. I listen to Greg Proops, the comedian. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Really wonderful comedian. And he he uh, does an hour and a half podcast every week where he talks about uh, you know current events and, and always always news. And he was just talking about how how corrupt the corporate news is and, and what a, yeah. what a, and they, he said, you know, who can you, who can you trust? I don't think you should trust anybody. You know, I think you should, uh, uh, you know, uh, always question whoever you're getting it from. He says, except for, you know, maybe me and Amy Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just this last three weeks trying to find out what the fuck was really happening in Gaza was just terrifying because the coverage was so bad. Yeah. I yeah. mean, most stations were just like, okay, Israel, whatever you want to say, here's your 10 seconds of, you know, just say what you got to say. I mean, and it was, it, it went all across the spectrum, you know? I mean, that, yeah. they have these two clowns on the McNeil Lair News Hour that get to sum up the week, you know, as they're yeah. kind of their, their House slaves. There's a House Republican and a House Democrat. And they're both really just dicks. Yeah. And the, the House Republican. Named David Brooks was a serious, serious asshole. Yeah. He, they asked him what he thought. He said, "Well, you know, they, they always start. Oh, this is tragic. You know, this is loss of life. Blah blah blah. Yeah. But at least Hamas's power is being reduced, so some good will come out of this." Yeah, yeah. You listen to this and you think, "Oh, eighteen hundred people died. Israel has the right to defend itself. Palestine doesn't." <laughs> All they've got is Hamas, who is just really ineffective, and they run around in tunnels and shoot up rockets that can't hit anything. Even rockets. It's like somebody else is saying, it's really more like projectiles. I saw that. That was Norm <laughs> Finkelstein. Yeah, they're kind, of of they're kind of uh, fireworks that are dressed up a little. Yes. You know, if they're all hitting over there, and this is the amount of damage they've done, yeah. you know, maybe we should be calling it rockets. That Norman was, I know that guy, he just was yeah. like, he would just... It was not a good interview because he really just was everything he could do not to sputter. Yeah. He was so mad. He was so mad. He just is so tired of it all. But that was a good example to me of just like, where the fuck are you going to get your news? Because most of it is so bad, so yeah. slanted. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's one thing that the Democrats and Republicans really agree on is that Israel should be allowed to do anything at once. Oh, fuck, yeah. You know, it's our, our, our man in in, in Tel Aviv, you know. <laughs> oh, fuck me, you know. We're just defending ourselves. Yeah. And it's it's sort of like, it, it so much reminded me of, like, the way that abusive husbands talk about their wives after they beat the crap out of them. Like, why did you make me do that? Why did you make me do that? Gaza, why yeah, did you make me bomb really, the fuck out of you? Yeah, yeah. You they're know, really responsible for all these things. You forced me to do that. You made me yeah, kill you. Yeah. And it was it's just was perverse. Oh my god, it was just scary, you know. Yeah. Really, I mean I I just it was one of the I mean almost was ready to write poems about it and shit. It was just <laughs> like I was just crawling to bed at night and just be so glad that it was Amy and Democracy Now to at least tell me what something that didn't make me feel like oh, you're not totally crazy. This is murder. This is bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's I was I I don't you know go off of you know about this online a lot, but on, on Facebook people will post you know thing after thing about like there is moral clarity in this conflict you know about Israel and stuff like that, and then finally you just get to a point where. I have to answer this obvious, you know, hypocrisy <laughs> that you're putting here for a second, you know. And, and there was people that were in an uproar because they canceled a, a Jewish film festival in London, yeah. Uh, and uh, 
because you know they demanded that they were going to accept money from the Israeli embassy. And, yeah. And I said, you know, you know, uh, you're really, you're. I'm disgusted by this action. And I'm like, I think they're disgusted too. But what they're disgusted about is, you know, tons and tons of civilian deaths. And what you're upset about <laughs> is some filmmakers not getting a screening. Yeah, <laughs> a little different here. Yeah, a little bit different. You know, the same. You know, they they. They bombed like one, you know, precision bombed one, two, three UN humanitarian sites. Yes. You know? At a certain point, you go down that road that, you know, the idea of a pariah state sort of, you know, becomes important. How far is it going to go? But the scary thing is, you know, it really doesn't, I, it, it sounds like from polls, 85% of the Israeli public was okay with this. Yeah. yeah. That's really, I mean, the, the Israeli lefties, I know, are so depressed. Yeah. I, but I think that's part of, I think that's the same thing when, you know, we first started bombing Iraq and, the, you know, Bush's numbers were like 90%. I think in the, in the heat of the conflict, you know, that always rises. But, but it, yeah, too much of the Israeli yeah. public is captivated by this existential idea that, you know, Hamas is, uh, you know... And they just get away with so much. I mean, it's like, I'm sorry, you think it's really anti-Semitic to object to what yeah. Israel's doing. I'm sorry. I, when I go down to the demos and get busted behind that shit, I'm getting busted with a lot of American Jews who are yeah. really, really pissed off at what Israel's doing. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of feel like, how dare you? I, I did to, to somebody who was like, you know, the Jewish the history and the people and the tradition is, is uh, a long and rich one. To say that you know, the only thing that's Judaism is, uh, you know, what's going on in Israel, and that depends on whether you're a Jew or not, is is uh, just crazy. I don't see how it's any different from fundamentalist Islam that is doing the same bullshit. Oh, yeah, you know? it's yeah. just, it, to me, it's just frightening. There's a little clip on uh, Democracy Now! where they were showing, I mean, they had, Amy was, had somebody on and talked about this, where there was some, Netanyahu talked about how, you know, we don't, glorify terrorists. We don't elect them our presidents and name our streets after them. And, you know, this guy came on and said, I'm sorry, but, you know, Menachem Begin and, and, and um, Ben-Gurion, they were in Irgun and Stern and they shot people. They shot civilians right up against the wall. And then they told the rest of the village, okay, you can, we can, you can join these corpses here or you can leave. Yeah. To what extent is that not like somebody else yeah, used machine yeah. gun people against a wall? Yeah, I, I'm not sure the moral superiority of, of dropping bombs from the sky as opposed to, you know, being a suicide bomber, you know? <laughs> like, like I think terrorism is the way, you know, poor people you well, know, fight wars. Well, that's the same. Terrorist and, yeah. is, is somebody with a bomb and no jet to drop it with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... But it's, just, it's amazing too. Like my liberal, you know, almost all Jewish friends who are supporting this will, will pull up, you know, the unbelievable people to support their opinions. Are you really going to like align yourselves with these far right people to defend the you know, Israelis' uh, position on this war? You know that guy you heard that Norm Finkelstein was on that show. Yeah. There's a big American academic named Alan Dershowitz. I once he wrote a book, you know, about how there really weren't any Palestinians in Palestine when the Israel got set up, yeah. and his research was wrong. And Norm land without people for people without land. Yes. Nothing, yeah. Norm wrote a book called The Holocaust Industry, and he just went after his research. And he said, "This is just wrong. Yeah. Actually, this is wrong." That man has followed him for the last 
15 years every time he tries to get a job. Yeah. Every time. That's furious. I mean, when you look at the sites, the websites that are pro-Israel, they're the most pissed off at Jews who are protesting yeah, Israel. Yeah. That's who they get the most pissed off at. Yeah, yeah. But I look at Israel and I think, all right, there but for the grace of God go the United States. I mean, how, how far are we from that? You know, somebody's talking about boycotting Israel. Like, you might as well boycott the United States because they're the one who are really paying for this dog and pony show. Oh, you know, I had just got out of jail with the when in '03 when Bush invaded Iraq, and you know, I was in jail with all these kids who had never been in jail before. You know, and and there was this great priest named Father Vitali who runs Saint Boniface downtown. He did the little homeless shelter that does meals and stuff, and he gets arrested all the time. And Father Vitali was in there, and the kids were saying, like, you know, how am I going to get out? I didn't bring my ID. <laughs> Father Vitali would just, I sat him all down very calmly in the big, this big jail cell, and just, okay, let me tell you how to get busted. <laughs> and he just explained the mechanics of it. It's so sweet, you know. But um, I, got, I was so worried because there just wasn't that much going on. People saying, this is stupid, why are we doing this? Why is it happening? And I got out of jail, I came home and I turned on the TV and Dr. Phil had got two anti-war activists to come on his show and then he got the moms and dads of all the American servicemen he could get his hands on to be the studio audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like, just like, go Gotha, let's just get some nails here, yeah, put these yeah. people up. And nowadays, you know, I'm afraid to go to demo, demos half of the time. I am afraid because I feel like you're walking the edge of we're going to be 50 people walking down the mission, the middle of Market Street advertising the fact that nobody gives a rat's ass about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I necessarily want to do that. You know? Yeah, the, the, uh, the attack on protesters and, and, you know, all that stuff, uh, you know, since Occupy and all that stuff has been pretty extreme. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm used to the old, good old days when it was just nothing happened, you know, yeah. and you just went to jail a lot, and <laughs> they dropped the charges. They always dropped the charges, you yeah. know. I mean, I've been to jail a bunch of times, and they, you know, they give you the ticket, and you go out, and, you know, I mean, I've, I've been in bus that were, you do this tactical thing where you put your, your, uh, ID in your socks or something, you, like you Xerox it, you only have an ID, a Xerox ID, because you want to be able to decide whether or not you want to cite and release or not. Because if they're keeping the leadership of your demo in there on felony charges, one of your tactical levers is nobody will leave jail. We're going to stay here. You're going to take all of us. If you're, you're going to have all of us if you're going to keep them. Yeah. So, you know, I've been in situations where I've actually been carried out of the jail by the cops and deposited in BART stations <laughs> with a ticket, with a BART ticket. <laughs> and they did it. I mean, this one time, I remember in Concord, we had tried so hard to get busted. They were shipping weapons to El Salvador. The whole thing was about, you know, U.S. support for the, for the, the military in El Salvador. We tore up an entire railroad track. They wouldn't bust us. They had... Marines, barbed wire, and the police. And we had to get through all three of them to get onto the base. And that's what we were trying to do. We could not get arrested. We spent all day trying to get arrested. It was incredible. And finally, some little old lady runs into the barbed wire. 
she had this beautiful big dress on and got all tangled up in it. And the cops were like, oh, oh we'll get you out. And we like, cool. And we flip a forklift pallet over on top of the barbed wire and shoot right over it. You know, got 200 people onto the base and got busted, you know. And we get into the, the, the jails in Concord, which are not nice jails. They're like pain in the ass. And the kid, the, all the inmates were like, get these fucking misdemeanors out of here. We want dinner. Meanwhile, all the protesters were saying, we're not eating anything except vegetarian. <laughs> we're such a pain in the ass they let us out. There was no way they were keeping us overnight. But now it's not like that. You can get yourself a federal ticket for bust, getting busted on federal property. $500. You can get a felony. You can get a felony for resisting arrest because you put your hands on your head when they're trying to beat you with the club. Yeah, yeah. I'm not into felony charges. <laughs> yeah, I've just certainly seen I'm, those videotapes where cops are beating, you know, unarmed uh, people and saying, stop, re stop resisting arrest, stop resisting, right. stop resisting. Yes. Right? I know there's no resistance going on. Yeah. Yeah, creepy. Oh, you know. It's, it's different. But it's also, I think it's less effective, these marches are... I don't know. We'll have to figure out a new way to protest. I don't know if the marches are really working. Yeah. I don't know what will work. You know? I really don't. Yeah. I look at these these protests in, uh, you know, like the ones in New York, at the fast food places, the kids are trying to get minimum wage now. Yeah. They're pretty inventive. They're doing some pretty smart stuff. You know, they're not doing the marches. They're going in dealing with the people who cross their picket line, talking to them and shit. And that's kind of effective. That's, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Some ways I really think, uh, you know, Obama really stifled uh, uh, outrage and, and protest while doing a lot of the same things that, that Bush did, you know? Yes. And, and yet, like, uh, you know, there was that weird thing about, like, we should let him do what he needs to do. We shouldn't, you know, protest or speak up at all. You know, we got to just support him. Jesus, he, the man is fucking Teflon. I don't get it. He's gotten away with shit. Bush, I mean, I, he was easy to hate. Yeah, yeah. The lazy yeah. prince. Yeah, Obama <laughs> has proven himself really hard to hate. Yeah. I'm, I've got there already now, but, you know, <laughs> he had to work on me for a while. When I'm talking about, when he was talking about torturing people and using the word folks. Yeah. We tortured some folks. Yeah. I did, Snowden has been the best political theater I've had in years. That's yeah. just been amazing. Yeah. Every time they he'd pop something down and they'd say, "Oh, we aren't doing that." He'd just release another thing and be like, "Oh yeah, you are yeah. way worse than that." <laughs> it's just been. I, he's a very interesting man, Mr. Snowden. Yeah, yeah. very interesting man. And the way they've. Uh... The way they've uh, talked about, you know, well, we're, we are looking at some of these programs now, or we were thinking about making some changes. Like, they admit that there's something that needs to be changed, and yet he's still, like, a demon for bringing this information forward. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Still a traitor for bringing this information forward. You know, when those things happen, it makes me wonder, and these are the kind of things I'm trying to write about now, like, where do you... How do you use something like poetry in a place like that? What do you do with it? It's not journalism. You don't, you're not using this to bring facts to people. It's not, it's not even like political theater or comedy. You know, I mean, if you listen to, if you want to go that route, 
it's much more effective to be a John Stewart or a John Oliver or something like that. Those guys are good at that shit. There's no way in a poem we're going to get anywhere close to that. What what is poetry for? In that context, if you're trying to think about it politically, what do you do? And to me, it just keeps coming down to asking harder questions about what is it that makes us not respond to this shit? Yeah. What is it that makes us tolerate these things? What is it in the body politic, including ourselves, that enables us to go on with our lives and shrug and say there's nothing we can do about it and and then nothing happens because you're not doing anything well just guess what nobody else is either and they're, the bad guys are getting over yeah, yeah. and that I try to write poems about and that's not fun that's hard it's ugly you know that's because it's part of it is just we're comfortable you know yeah. I have a nice apartment I have a decent job I fed well I, nobody's shooting at me I haven't never heard a bomb Ever, I haven't been within a thousand miles of one. I've been beat up by cops only because I put myself in their way. Otherwise, they completely leave me alone. Yeah. One time I ever had trouble with law enforcement when I was really drunk and I was burning shit on my stove and this fireman busted out my door and said, you know, the fuck is your problem? You know, <laughs> we should put some clothes on too. <laughs> but, you know, there's a famous, did you, did you ever read that W.H. Auden poem? about uh, the death of Yeats. Yeah. It's a great poem, the eulogy about, um, for W.B. Yeats, and, and Auden had this thing about Yeats, which kind of loved him and he hated him. He, sometimes he said he was the most evil man in the whole fucking world. Um, but he, it's a poem where he basically says, poetry doesn't, can't make anything happen. Poetry does a lot of things, it cannot make anything in the world happen cannot change anybody's head. I don't know that I believe that. I'm not sure. But there's a place in literature where we can go to ask ourselves, what does it take to change somebody's head? And I don't know if this is necessarily just poetry. I think this is literature. But if you look at some of our best books, I think that they have gone to that place to say, what... What does it take to change somebody? You know, you take somebody, they're not evil. They're a little kid on a raft with an ex-escaped slave thinking, you know, I like this guy, but he's, somebody owns this guy, I better tell his master where he is. You know, and Huck Finnick, the, the, the climax of the book is, no, there's, it's, there's no action. It's the moment when he says, I, I guess I'm not going to send that letter to the slave's owner. And he tears up the, the little note saying where Jim is. Mm -hmm. And the whole book has been all about him just digging into himself, trying to figure out why, why do I feel these things? What, what, what made me into somebody who would turn in my friend Jim here? And he sounds like a good guy. And he and, but every night, you know, he's just a slave talking about, my kids were sold. And he, he's never thought about being somebody. The guy's a dad. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, if you could do that in a poem, I would love, rather do that than make people laugh. Or, you know, I, it's hard. I don't know how to do that. I'm still thinking about that. I would like to do that. Yeah. If I died and what, wrote like three poems were decently going into just the extent to which Americans can accommodate this much evil in the world that they 
are paying for. Yeah. I would die okay. I would be fine <laughs> with it. Even if nobody ever read it, and probably nobody ever would, but um, that that interests me. That really interests me. And poets have tried all sorts of ways to get over that one, you know. The teaching empathy, do you think? Is that the word of that yes. somehow? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to say what what how do you, how do you all skate when this is going down. I mean, and it has given us some of our best. That's where Macbeth came from. I mean, Shakespeare's dad was Catholic. Shakespeare may have been Catholic, may not. We have no idea what Shakespeare was. But the gunpowder plot happened. King James starts just butchering Catholics right after it goes down. And right after that, what do we get? We get Macbeth about a bloody tyrant. Nothing in there about Catholics, nothing in there. But it is the shortest, most lethal play he ever wrote. And it was addressed to the very guy who was out there butchering thousands of Catholics for something they had nothing to do with. Yeah. He snuck that one in there. He took a huge chance. Shakespeare was not very well known for taking big political chances. He worked for, you know, his plays got played to Queen, Queen Lizzie. He wasn't into getting her pissed <laughs> off. Or... King James, who was had a limited attention span and tended to fall asleep in the middle of the long play. <laughs> so it was Macbeth is also his shortest play. But it makes you ask those questions. And there's there's speeches in there that you know just about how what what does it do to somebody to commit that much evil? You know, what where where do they go? Do you really see ghosts in the middle of your dinner party? Yeah. Flipping out, <laughs> you can't get your hands clean. I mean, I love those moments in those plays, and some of those speeches are great. And I kind of honor people who are willing to go there. Yeah, you know, it's there's places in Dante where in, in hell where he's just got people who have done awful fucking shit, and some people who are in hell and they haven't done anything bad. And Dante is just saying to himself, "Why have we got these people in the worst place and in the religion can imagine?" They didn't do anything. They committed adultery. You know? <laughs> but I, I, this, these are questions that, that I want to ask those questions. I would like to see those questions asked a lot more. And I don't see them asked a lot. Yeah. There's a great Italian film that came out a few years ago called Il Divo about uh, an Italian figure I wasn't familiar with, but he's, he's, he's sort of someone described as the Dick Cheney of Italian politics. He's okay. the guy who... Uh, is responsible for uh, a lot of violence being done in his, in his uh, nodding. And in the whole film, pretty much, he is just escorted from one place of great luxury to the next. It's always like him coming into an incredible ballroom and going across, you know, incredible food and beautiful people. And every once in a while, he'll make a sort of... Uh, vague uh, announcement about his uh, you know disagreement with something and then there'll be a short montage of people getting shot up in cars or whatever and yet like his being escorted from one uh, one uh, <clears throat> you know extravagant room to the next and it never stops and at the end he finally ends up in court and there's a long drawn out court thing and uh, one of his fellow uh, fellow people in power ask him how, how he's how he's holding up with all this court stuff he says worst thing is I'm, I'm really bored so. <laughs> <laughs> 
and that seemed to be like the, the you know the, the the biggest blow that you know he could he could you know receive in the, the, the society. Like oh, things got so bad that they finally like bored him. You know. Uh, <laughs> I wish I knew how to write about boredom. How my kid talks about boredom. He's he's nine, and yeah. every once in a while, I'll decide that he's bored from I'm school. Always, not school, just just uh, you know, at the, around the house. You know, I'm bored. Yeah. Like, oh, well, that's a real. This might be the most important part of the day. You know, if you're bored, then you really have to decide how you're going to, you know, entertain yourself. So, yeah. You know, this is an exciting moment that's happening right now. <laughs> uh, should read him. Did you ever read that? Uh, it's a poem by John Berryman. He did a really brilliant sequence of poems called the Dream Songs. But one of them just starts out by saying, "Life, friends, is boring." We must not say so. <laughs> but everything that bores him, life bores me, people bore me, literature bores me, especially great literature. He goes on to what it's doing to him. But I would like to write about boredom as a secretary, you know, just it's like the, the depth of it after a while, just what it does to your brain. And, and it's not as mean, you know, but how many, how many. People, I mean, you look at you, you can look out my window and see downtown, and those are all secretary factories. They're all people sitting up there punching data into these fucking machines, yeah, yeah. and their minds are rotting. They're just yeah. absolutely sitting there going crazy because they have perfectly good little brains and they're working on perfectly interesting little things that they're not allowed to think about because they have to put the fucking data in, and every time they think too much, they make typos. Yeah, you learn how not to think. A little bit. I turn my brain off when I go to work in the morning. You know, I turn it on at night. But <laughs> this is this entire generations have just been utterly wasted. Yeah, yeah. Just by boredom. You know, I'm sorry, Gallen Ginsburg. You may have seen your entire generation die from you know like these excesses of you know emotion and drugs and shit. I saw my generation get bored out of its fucking skull. You know. Yeah. And it wasn't just mine. It's been generation after generation of generation. Yeah. Working class jobs are boring. Yeah, yeah. Is that really necessary? Yeah, I mean, I really think about the species and you know how we, as a communal pack, sort of rose up and everything. Like, uh, why, why did we invent this boredom? <laughs> like, why did, why did we invent this as a, a way to go through life? Because I don't think genetically <coughs> it's it's wire hardwired in there. I think you know probably. There's an awful lot of brutal, horrible things about being a Neanderthal, but I think maybe boredom probably wasn't a huge piece of it. <laughs> when your job was mainly to go out there and face down fucking mastodons and shit, that's not boring. It's a bunch of things, but boring not so much. Gotta keep on your toes a little. known men so terrified of who they grew up to be their bodies are worse than prisons and I've seen my share of elegant victories over the male Bastille all it takes is style and the courage to insist Doris even made it look graceful when her hair fell out she had wigs for days love is never need a license to exist old men with your stone tablets let the in order beware Doris Fish is dead but her drag's still here Once upon a time in California friends when I was hired as the token queer at a politically correct hippie shit grocery store I found myself knocking with a girl in the vegetable cooler thinking what will I say if someone sees us 
I didn't seem to fit in anywhere and I wasn't sure I should. I just couldn't swing that 45 caliber conception of men who are sexy depending on how many holes they can blow in their victims. Doris's sluts of go-go were more fun than Sylvester Stallone and I think a laugh is more persuasive than a gun. Doris is dead, but the show goes on. Now there's a difference between a direction of the wind and a trend, between accidents and tragedies, attitudes and men, between going down on someone and coming back up again. It takes all kinds of grace to sustain us. Doris fell off a balcony show one time, kept singing while she hung to the rail. I see her face on the moon and get mad again. She'll never even be on a postage stamp. Shit. First man the U.S. put in orbit also launched a political career that ended in a banking scam. He got a postage stamp. I'll vote for Doris. She was my kind of man. Go down, Moses. Leave the commandments alone. Promised land is a safe place to sleep. It's a freedom to make your way home unmolested, loaded in heels and gold lame. Lord, have mercy on the extravagant of spirit when boys drive by in their muscle cars at midnight, not applauding. You haven't lived till you've seen your heart's frown and curlers, her dumb blonde, but I'm really smarter than you, routine. Doris made me happy, her wit was so crisp, doing sexual jujitsu on those old Hollywood rolls. I like to imagine Doris walking down Main Street at high noon in small town USA, disturbing what passes for the peace these days. And I think it's even harder to change people than the law. I want Doris on primetime TV. I've met children, 10 years old, who already learned how to whisper, faggot. Been so sick of it, I saw myself sprawled on the sidewalk with a cup and a sign that says another sensitive soul who couldn't hack it. Can you spare a quarter? I need a new dress. Doris is dead and I'm not depressed. I've had it. This is insane. She's on the front page in all her former health and glory, right next to a budget cutback story. They keep the army in the closet, they keep playing with their guns, fighting the most ridiculous wars you ever heard of, and Doris is dead. Couldn't a few missile silos disappear in her honor? Couldn't the president just admit on the news tonight he doesn't know what he's doing, and if we knew what he was doing, we'd shoot him? Doris died. We have a plague on our hands. God damn it, we have a problem. Doris, you can't leave. We need you now. Schwarzenegger has his eye on the Senate. They spent more money on the war with Iraq than they spent on all medical research in the world combined since the century began. I get up and go to work in the morning, and even Marlboro Man looks sad. How many must follow? How long will it take? She was the queen of Vegas in outer space. A pro, one of the best in the biz. Doris died. How dare she? We needed her bad. Who does that bitch think she is? Be nice to solve these problems. They are not soluble problems. I guess probably that's why the questions are fun, because there's no answers to them. <laughs> older I get, the more interested I am in people who can ask a really, really good question. Good questions are harder to come by than good answers to things. There's a scene in uh, that documentary about Thelonious uh, Monk, who I think is my favorite piano player. Straight Note Chaser? Straight Note Chaser, where yeah. he's 
he's just asking himself, why is this so hard? Why can't they play this shit? You know, and he's talking about Charlie Rouse and the, his band. And he's like, he goes in, he gives them the charts. And he says, okay, let's try it. And he listens to them for, it just doesn't even, they don't even get like six bars in. He's like, I'm gonna come back later. <laughs> he does, it's, it's, it's the disgust is so profound. His, his question is just like, why is it so hard? People get me, you know? Why don't people understand what I'm trying to do here? Why is it so hard? I saw this today. It was an interesting little quote. I don't really like this guy that much. His name is Terry Eagleton. He's a, like a literary critic, a Marxist in England. But he's, he's basically saying, there isn't anybody, there's no preeminent British poet, playwright, or novelist who's questioning our lives now. There's no Shelley, there's no Byron, there's no Blake, there's nobody just getting down at the absolute bottom of where do we live and saying, this is fucked up, why do we do this? Why do we live this way? Why do we let the British Empire decide this is how we're going to think? Yeah, yeah. You know, and America's the same thing. Like, I, you know, Adrian Rich just died and I gave her credit for doing some of that stuff in the world of poetry, but I can't really think of anybody who's really, really doing that, asking like, the very basic questions, how do we live and why is this bad? What's wrong with it? Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe Tony Kushner a little bit, a little, little bit, but then, you know, how radical can you be when Steven Spielberg makes your movie about fucking Lincoln or something, you know? <laughs> we just went to see his play, The Intelligent Socialist Guide to, The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Communism and the Bible, Socialism and the Bible, at Berkeley Rep. It was really interesting, but it was just like Angels in America. So, mess. <laughs> mess. Great parts of that, parts that just didn't make it. I didn't realize you weren't a fan of Angels in America. Very good. I liked it. it was, uh -huh. Did you like it? I, I, I've only seen the television production with my, that Mike Nichols did. Mm -hmm. But I was pretty in, in, impressed by the, the, the scope of it. And yeah. I loved the history and everything, but somewhat of a mess for you? Well, yeah, I mean, it just, it was all over the place, and it just, it wasn't like, there's a certain, certain movies and certain poems and stuff where somebody, I feel like they've got their shit together, their focus is there, it's like a little laser, they know where they're going, and they're going, Zzzz! and it's powerful, that kind of control over your medium and what you're doing. Tony Kushner does not have that, he has never had that, he doesn't know how to go, <laughs> he knows how to go, whoop, da, whoop, da, whoop, da, whoop, and he's got little bits that are brilliant, you know? The, the, the guy who's an aide to McCarthy and he's dying of AIDS, that was brilliant, that little bit. Yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff about the Mormons, yeah, weird. It just wasn't like <laughs> blowing my brain or anything. It was just, like, some of the stuff was weird, interesting, some of the stuff about Finally, Mormons. somebody's getting to the Mormon scourge. Yeah, you know, but really it's just how weird Mormons are about their underwear or something. <laughs> Who gives a shit, you know? And this, this communist thing was about an old American communist, but, you know, there were great things in it, but there was all those things like, Jesus Christ, Tony. Really? <laughs> you think this is all it's, it's, it was about? <laughs> Not so much. You know? So I don't know. I don't know. But I, it scares me a little bit to be talking like that because it makes me feel like 
I've heard old people say there's that the kids aren't doing anything new and they, these kids aren't you know blowing my mind and they really don't know what they're doing and yeah. it's it's that you know it's like you know rock and roll's fucked. <laughs> I don't want to go there. I don't want to be that old man. <laughs> I, I find myself uh, the way I find myself uh, expressing those ideas is that you know. I really wish that kids were coming up with some sort of music I did not understand and could not get on board with. But with the, with the kids are making today, though, I feel like I know only too well what it's about. <laughs> like, it, it, they're, I'm not surprised by it. I'm not put off by it. I'm not, uh, you know. No. Uh, I'm not confused by it. I, 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 get, I get it. I kind of agree with you, you know. I mean, yeah. I, it's a, there's a little tirade I do with poets, young poets, that who... I want them to learn the tricks of the trade. Yeah. You know, I want the, I, they don't have to use them, but it's sort of like, you know, Wynton Marsalis talking about, look, you don't have to, you know, be all that good with time signatures, but you need to know how they work, okay? Don't be illiterate. Yeah. And I, this is my thing with, like, poets. I want them to know how meter works and scansion works, even if they don't end up using it or write formal verse. And my, my favorite example is, you know, it's not Yeats or Shakespeare, it's a band, a girl band called the Pussycat Dolls, who had these hits a couple years ago. And they were nothing special, but their hits were, they did not write their hits. They had pros come in who knew what the fuck they were doing. And then this one hit, one that, their biggest hit was called, it had these lines that went, Bet you wish your girlfriend was hot like me. Bet you wish your girlfriend was a freak like me. That's written by somebody who understands scansion. That is trochaic verse. First stress on the first syllable, and then not on the second syllable. And they use what are called substitutions, where you go, Bet you wish your girlfriend was hot. And was hot is the one variation where you put a substitution in there where the accent's on a different syllable, it's not on the front end, and it emphasizes that one line. Well, that's what you want to emphasize when you have a bunch of girls up there who are really cute dancing, and they all go, what's hot? And they put their little butts out. That's somebody who knows what they're doing. And the very next line, the only variation metrically is, what's a freak? And they're going to stick their butts out. You know what I mean? And that's, it's technically very competent. It's stupid. But, you know, when I'm going off about, you know, like metrics i just tell the kids this it, it, this is how you will get the job done if you need to get the job done and you don't know how to make people feel what you want to feel it's it's this is it's just like knowing how to stay in key it's like knowing how to change up from four four to five four in a tune you know know it you might like to use it someday and they're like good i'm gonna go to sleep now the fuck is talking about scansion man you know i don't blame them but it's, Pussycat dolls suck. Yeah, they do suck, you know? But they sucked all the way to the bank and back. And some of them are more competent with metrics than an awful lot of poets that I listen to at open mics. Who, you know, they just really don't know why the last stanza didn't work any better than this stanza, and neither of them were the same meter. What the fuck? No... This is why God gave you fingers, so you can count. Blah, 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 you know? <laughs> I don't know. And then it makes me feel like I'm being an old conservative asshole, you know, but... Yeah. I, 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 I sometimes wonder, too, whether, you know, what, what, what is the... 
the mindset that comes sort of at the end of empire, sort of where we are now, I think in some ways as well too, and whether uh, falling back on the on the old ways, the nostalgic ways, when we were still sort of in ascent, isn't like too much of a nostalgic pull to resist, or you know, that uh, even young people seem unusually uh, enamored with the rock of our era, or, or you know, the music of our era, or just yeah. our times, you know. Oh, I mean, the stuff about glorifying, like, the 70s, I get horrified at some point, you know, like, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but Aerosmith is not my idea of immortal music, it's just <laughs> not, and you know, if you watch TV, that Steve Tyler is all the fuck over the place, everybody thinks he is some sort of god, he is a vapid fucking idiot, <laughs> really, just a Freaking idiot. I don't think he's a bad person. I don't know anything about him. But really? This is who we're going to glorify? Is fucking Aerosmith and Steve Tyler? Please. How did we get there? You know, it's it's a scary thing that, that, that I learned in Chile when I was there. Because they, they were just coming off of 18 years of a dictatorship. And I was asking them, you know, like, what has it done to Chile? You know, you've had, like, fascists running your country. You've had fascists controlling your culture. You've had censors, you know, saying you cannot publish this shit. What, what has it done? And they said, well, it's not what you think. It's not all, like, you know, patriotic songs in the morning or any of that crap. It's game shows. It's soap operas. <laughs> it's pap. That's what they sell you is pap. Yeah, yeah. And then I look at American TV and I think, wow, this is a really, really studied pap. Talk about something that's really uh, been defanged over the uh, the last 10 or 20 years, too, you know, to, to look at all the uh, <coughs> the real shows that had scripts and acting and stories. And, uh, and today, where you turn it on and it's all... You know, three-legged races with people on islands or whatever. You know, like I really feel like, boy, they've really drained almost all the art they can out of this and replaced it with uh, the the most trivial things imaginable. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? What? I mean, I, there was a little moment there in the in the nineties, uh, early aughts, when I was thinking. Something's happening here. Something interesting is happening. This is, we're getting the wire. We're getting Treme. We're getting like smart people. Yeah. We're getting things going down that I haven't never seen anybody try before. Oh yeah, fucking Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Great fucking show. Josh Whedon, smart guy, did some yeah. interesting shit. Yeah. And then they're all gone. They're all banished. You know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess. With they, David Simon and stuff, he's still making Treme or just got done finishing Treme. Some yeah. of these people have survived. Yeah, yeah. It's not like there isn't anything of, of value, but boy, to, to really spin through the TV today and look at, you know, it's on 20 channels, it's like... Yeah. Uh, yeah. It really is. I mean, and, and it, it's, at, at a certain point, I thought, this is a new American art form. This is like... I don't care if it's like The Wire or Deadwood. I mean, it's like there's this is character development. People are actually giving us a novel yeah. in film. And Novelistic detail. They're really. yeah, they're taking this character development seriously, and they're build their they're they've got an art for the character, problems and development that's brand new. And 
I just thought for a little while, this is just, I mean, The West Wing was really well written. There was smart stuff in there. They could take an episode that was all about whether or not we can get a floor vote and be gripping. That's hard. <laughs> they managed to do that. Yeah. How did that get eviscerated? Where did, how did they just cut the fuck out of that? Yeah. It's just money. I guess it's just money because if you can get really good ratings with a bunch of people jumping up on, you know, little hippie hoppy things on American Ninja. That's partially true and it's not partially not true. That uh, one, one of the, you probably know this example, the example I hold up is that, that you know, like Phil Donahue was the best uh, rated show on MSNBC at the, mm -hmm. uh, at the start of the Iraq war and they took him off right away right. because they didn't want to have somebody. So there's definitely a line you can you can be making money, but if you're if you're really voicing you know anti-corporate ideas or anti-state ideas, like you can, it's real easy for them to to, to uh, push that money away. Yeah. But it's, this is this is the challenge of the internet. Somebody's got to figure out how to make money. Yeah. With that stuff, because if if you could do that, and just be able to put your stuff up there and figure out a way that people are willing to pay just one dollar to get through the gate yeah. and see your show. Yeah. It, if enough people pay that fucking dollar, it suddenly becomes economically viable, and you there are no censors. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's sort of like the moment in 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 hip hop where yeah, the N.W.A. crew just said to their you know Columbia, "Fuck you." You don't have nothing that big. We couldn't do, go out and do our, you know, Suge Knight goes out and does Death Row Records and it's, it was just revolutionary just because he just told them to fuck themselves and it worked. <laughs> I think that was the sort of thing too where the, where, where the sort of white powers that be that own those labels like uh, we have, uh, we can't even pretend to have an understanding of this. This seems to be something, you know, the, mm -hmm. colored, the colored people like. Yes. Like we're just going to let them do their thing where like, with the rock music, you know, everybody. I'm sure all right. these people do, or think they have a, you know, a way to make it all better. Where it seemed like they were left alone because it was this, this music that sort of came from the margins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, rap, the music business just got caught with its pants down, and then it was chasing it really hard to get it back. Yeah, there yeah. was money there. Yeah. They realized they just sent money out the front door. It's very rare American businessmen with their genius for opportunism send money out the front door because yeah. they have political problems with it. Yeah, yeah. Rap, at least you have to give the mid-90s rap credit for that, that they were able to piss off the American music industry so much that they forced them to go out and do their own shit for a little while. <laughs> I was watching the MTV, uh, what is it, Behind the Music VH1 show, yeah. watching the Public Enemy one. And uh, with everything that was going down around them, it was like, it's hard to believe I lived through this and this really happened. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that thing, they, the cover they did with the 911, the, all that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. For five minutes there, it was just like, God, I could stand up and breathe clear air and be proud to be an American again. Yeah, Thank you, yeah. Chuck D., you know? <laughs> Not long, but... No, no. That was a real moment. Dang. But then... I don't know. I mean, even people you really like, somehow they can get, they can be bought. They I recently saw the, the, the Super Bowl when the, Don Bob Dylan was uh, doing the GM, was it? He, he was doing a, a commercial for one of the, yeah. the car companies and talking yeah. about, you know, how real it was or something. Oh, I mean, I, I, 
I used to think Josh Whedon had some politics. He just he has a show now about how wonderful what what heroes the CIA is. It's <laughs> like please, you know. <laughs> I remember there was a, what was that girl's name? She married Ben Affleck. Jennifer Garner. Yeah, yeah. She had a hit show for a while called Alias. That's right. She was so stupid. She was willing to go on the CIA website as a recruiter for new CIA agents as the alias person. <laughs> like she thought this was actually a good thing to do. That's crazy. I don't even think she's right wing. I just think she's stupid. <laughs> there was a great film that came out. A great film. A, a comedy that came out. Idiocracy. Oh, I did hear about it. I didn't see it. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty amazing. And that got thwarted by the by the company. I think they, they, the rumor was that somebody, a, a vice president somewhere along the line, just said, like, no, this is not going to come out. And it was really about how society has really dumbed us all down. Mm -hmm. And it presented this whole corporate world. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, and that film got really got really buried. It, it barely got released, and and uh, and uh, his next film, uh, it's the same guy who did King of the Hill, Mike Mike Judge. Mike Judge, he's his, a smart guy. His next film was all about. Uh, it's all centered around the boss and how all of his employees were idiots. Yeah, and it seemed, seemed like that was sort of a mea culpa. Like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna do another film. It's gonna be about how great authority is. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean the only people who can do that get away with that stuff on a regular basis. They have to give it to absolutely everybody. They cannot be focused on who they can. Yeah, yeah. The Simpsons cannot go after Mr. Burns all the time. They got to go after Homer, too. They got yeah. to, everybody's got to get it. Yeah, yeah. If you're an equal opportunity satirist, you can get away with it. People, people are congratulated for not having a point of view often. You know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's the way to go. Don't take a political stand. I think we're ready to wrap this up, are we? Oh my God, you're still rolling. I'm still rolling. Oh, yeah. this is scary. Yes, turn that off. <laughs> <laughs> Great talking to you, Dave. You too, Dan. Thank you so much. I haven't talked about these things in a while. It's... I'd go to her place, she'd come to mine, and we'd start fucking. That was our how was your day, dear fuck. Then there was the late night, I'm terrified, fuck. You wake up, it's morning, what might happen today, I feel fantastic, fuck. Mid-afternoon, you are gorgeous, fuck. Please pick me up, I am floundering, fuck You are leaving town, I need to stock up, fuck Or the Wait till you taste these tomatoes, this fish You're gonna eat like a queen tonight, fuck And it was the Frank died Hold me and weeping, fuck 
Say I'm not sure you love me anymore, prove it, fuck Or the out of nowhere for no reason, fuck That could kick out the stops and roll for hours The trapped, fuck, the sad, fuck, the fuck that never was Or the last, fuck, the inevitable last one One, two, three, four. That's it for today's show. Check out David's books, Evil Spirits and Their Secretaries from Zeitgeist Press and Elegy for the Old Stud from Manic D Press. Catch past episodes of Fun to Know at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me, Spinning Jazz, Mondays at 11 a.m. EST from WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time. Is it okay if I roll a joint here? Oh, God, I haven't had a pot in so long. That sounds lovely. <laughs>